so last night, wow, only 24 hours ago, it feels like a long time already. Last night I invited us all to reflect on our aspirations for being here on this retreat. And now, almost 24 hours later, for some of you it may feel like those beautiful aspirations are a very distant memory. And even though they're physically here, the connection in the heart may feel a little kind of stretched. And perhaps in their place, there's a particular question that keeps coming up. Why am I doing this again? What was I thinking when I signed up for this? Because for most people, there's no denying that the first day of a retreat is often pretty challenging. We're dealing with the inevitable physical discomfort of the body as it, get, as it gets used to sitting for longer periods of time more often. And we're usually also dealing with mental discomfort of not having our usual strategies for coping available to us in the same way. So for some of us, it might feel like we're going through a kind of a detox. And like any natural process, it does take time. So if you are experiencing these various forms of discomfort, I'd really like to encourage you to have patience because, and to trust that it, it does get easier. Because as the old adage says, if you're going through hell, keep going. And hopefully hell is too strong a word for what's what you've been experiencing here. But probably some of your experiences may have been quite unpleasant. And in some ways, this is actually good because those unpleasant experiences can become very powerful resources for deepening our practice if we understand how to relate to them in the right way. But, and, this can take some training because our default reaction to unpleasant experiences is usually to try to get rid of them as fast as possible. And even very experienced meditators can have the unconscious belief that if they were practicing properly, then they'd be abiding in some kind of permanent bliss state for the entire retreat. But this is a serious misunderstanding of what this practice is about. It's not about making us immune to life's inevitable difficulties. It is about changing our relationship to those difficulties. But because our usual strategies of relating to difficulty are so strongly ingrained, most of us need a multi-pronged approach to changing our habits. And one of the aspects of the Buddha's teachings that I really appreciate is that they are so comprehensive and so holistic. The path of practice that he laid out gives us a whole range of different methods to work with. And broadly speaking, these methods can be divided into two main approaches, those that develop wisdom and those that develop compassion. So I mentioned earlier this metaphor of the two wings to awakening, being wisdom and compassion. And from that metaphor, we can understand very directly that we need both wisdom and compassion to be equally well-developed 
if metaphorically we're going to fly. And I'll be going into more detail about these two wings a little later, but just for now, some working definitions. What is meant by wisdom in this context? It's another word for insight, for clear seeing, for understanding the deepest truths of our human experience. Truths which free us from unhelpful habits and lead to complete freedom of heart and mind. So the wisdom wing of the practice includes insight meditation, which rests on the four foundations of mindfulness that we started exploring today. And then the other wing of the practice, the compassion wing, refers to the capacity to turn towards what's difficult, to meet our own challenges, to meet other people's challenges with kindness, with care and with courage. So the compassion wing of the practice includes what are known as the four Brahma-vihara practices. These are specific forms of meditation that cultivate the heart qualities, such as metta or kindness, compassion itself, appreciative joy, and equanimity or balance of mind. And later on in the retreat, we'll be doing some of those forms of meditation. But it's never too early to start inclining the heart and mind in the direction of kindness and compassion. Because when we're able to soften around difficult experiences, (coughs) instead of getting into a fight with them, then these difficult experiences offer us a very valuable opportunity to come right into the heart of the Buddha's teachings, to explore what are known as the Four Noble Truths which probably most of you have at least some familiarity with because they are so uh, central to his teachings. And the Buddha is reported to have given these teachings right after his enlightenment or awakening under the Bodhi tree in India about two and a half thousand years ago. And like everything else that he taught, these four noble truths explore suffering and the end of suffering. Because by his own admission, that was really all the Buddha was interested in. He was not interested in metaphysical speculation or philosophies or debating all the other kind of esoteric uh, questions that most of the other spiritual teachers of his day were interested in. He said, I teach one thing, actually, It's two things, but this is what he's reported to have said. I teach one thing, suffering and the end of suffering. And he went on to spend the next 45 years of his life sharing these practices that develop wisdom and compassion in the service of understanding suffering so that we can free ourselves from it. So tonight, then, I'd like to spend some time on the wisdom wing of the practice through an exploration of these Four Noble Truths. And I I think some of you might be fairly new to these teachings, so just to get us started, I'll give you a brief summary of what the Four Noble Truths are in the way that they're conventionally translated. So the first Noble Truth is a very simple statement, usually translated as, there is suffering. And the second noble truth is also very simple. There is a cause of suffering. (coughs) 
The third noble truth, again, very simple, there is an end of suffering. And the fourth noble truth, there is a path that leads to the end of suffering. And if you're like me, uh, the first time I heard these teachings, I had a bit of a sense of disappointment, even confusion. Because one, all of that talk about suffering didn't sound very appealing or inspiring. And these four truths seem so simplistic as to almost be irrelevant. And it is true that these statements are very pithy and it might at first seem hard to get a sense of, well, how do they apply to our lives? So just to acknowledge that one of the ways these teachings are presented is through this mechanism of numbered lists. Because back in India at that time, uh, spiritual teachings were transmitted orally through memorizing, reciting, learning, sharing, verbally. There was no written uh, writing down of these texts. And numbered lists are a, a simple way of helping things stick in the memory. But to our more contemporary ears, they often don't sound very juicy. The four this, or the five that, or the seven the other, and it's like we easily just tune out. But recently I've been thinking of these numbered lists as being a bit like camping food. You know, those very dehydrated, lightweight meals you can buy in camping stores, and you can take them hiking with you. They're dehydrated so that they're light and they're portable. We can take them anywhere. But in their dehydrated form, they're not very edible, certainly not very delicious. So we have to unpack them and mix them with water and heat them so that they get reconstituted into something that's edible and nourishing. And in some ways, these numbered lists are similar. We have to take these key ingredients and explore them in the context of our own lives. Then they can start to make sense and actually become something useful to live by. And that's what we'll be doing over the course of this week. And there's a lot in, the, in these teachings, so don't feel like you have to take all of them in all at once. Just let, the, let them wash over you and trust that whatever is useful and relevant now will naturally show up and the rest you may come back to perhaps weeks or months or even years later. So again, because some of you are quite new to this, um, these teachings, I'll give just a little bit of context about where the Four Noble Truths come from. So according to the legend of the Buddha's life, he was born into a wealthy family in northern India about 2,600 years ago. And as a young prince, his family name, his clan name was Siddhartha Gautama. And for about the first 29 years of his life, he apparently lived in relative luxury. But just before he turned 30, he seems to have had some kind of existential crisis. And his, it seems that his indulgent lifestyle wasn't really doing it for him anymore. And he left the palace against the wishes of his parents in search of a more meaningful way of life. He went and studied with all the leading spiritual teachers of his day, 
most of whom seem to be teaching hardcore ascetic practices, different ways of um, torturing the body actually to try and subdue it, to transcend it. And Siddhartha Gautama was a very dedicated student and the text describe in graphic detail how he really followed these practices to their utmost so strenuously that he almost died. But fortunately for us, as he was close to death, he, uh, he, started, he actually realized that tormenting his body like that hadn't really got him anywhere. And so he gave up the asceticism in favor of a more balanced practice that he came to call the middle way. And this middle way is the balance point between the extremes of, on one hand, self-torture, and on the other hand, self-indulgence. And it's said that not long after recognizing the value of this more balanced practice, this middle way, he sat down under what became known as the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya, northern India, to meditate through the whole night. And during this period of extended meditation, it's said that he developed penetrating insight into the Four Noble Truths. And through that understanding, he came to realize Nibbana, Nibbana, also translated as liberation or awakening, enlightenment or ultimate freedom. And this is when Siddhartha Gautama became the Buddha, because as I said the other night, the Buddha is a kind of a title that means awakened one. So for now, what's significant is that right after this experience of freedom, the Buddha gave his first discourse on the middle way and it sets out his understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So these Four Noble Truths really lie at the heart of everything he taught, and essentially they're about freedom from suffering. In other words, how to release the habitual patterns that keep us caught in stress and distress and suffering, and in their place, cultivate ways of being in the world that lead to more ease and happiness and freedom. So this first noble truth, usually translated as there is suffering, we can hear the word suffering and think, well, yeah, there's aspects of my life that aren't going so well at the moment, but I can't really say that I'm suffering. So we might not immediately connect with what's being pointed to here partly because of the problem of translating suffering as suffering. The Pali word is dukkha. And like many Pali words, this word dukkha has a much broader range of meaning than the English word suffering might suggest. So it's worth looking at how the Buddha defines dukkha, both in the context of the Four Noble Truths and also elsewhere in his teaching. So in the context of the First Noble Truth, this is a translation from Tanasaro Bhikkhu, and he translates the word dukkha as stress. So this is the definition of the first noble truth. Now this, practitioners, is the noble truth of stress. Birth is stressful. Aging is stressful. Death is stressful. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are stressful. 
Association with the unloved is stressful. Separation from the loved is stressful. Not getting what one wants is stressful. In short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. So we could probably spend the whole rest of this retreat exploring that one paragraph. But just in summary, we, I think we can all agree that birth and aging and sickness and death are stressful. Having to be with what we don't like is stressful. Not being with what we do like is stressful. Certainly not getting what we want is stressful. And elsewhere in the teachings, the Buddha used the same word dukkha in relation to more subtly unpleasant aspects of experience. So he talked about dukkha being one of the three universal characteristics that are common to every experience we can have. So every experience we have is impermanent. It changes, it doesn't last. It's unreliable. And because of this changing unreliability, it's not capable of providing us with lasting satisfaction. So even pleasant experiences have this quality of dukkha. And in this context, a more accurate translation might be unsatisfactoriness or unreliability. Because before long, no matter how beautiful and pleasant the experience is, it will pass away. And then we're right back in the same position of having to find the next hit of something pleasant that we hope will do it for us. So this Pali word dukkha has a very broad range of types of suffering from the most extreme anguish at one end through to just that basic sense of discomfort or unease at the other. And some translators have made the point that the etymology of the word dukkha comes from the terminology for an axle hole, the hole of a wheel. So in India at that time, the wagon wheels were solid timber and they had a square hole with an axle shaft going into it. And if this hole didn't fit properly, you got a very bumpy ride. And so that too is a, a metaphor for this sense of unease, discomfort, unsatisfactoriness. Something being not quite right. And so in that sense, I think all of us are very familiar with dukkha. And I like to check, now, even right now, in this moment, can any of you say that you're absolutely 100% happy, at ease, and comfortable? Usually not, no. Because there's always something, right? That slight sense of, I wish I'd had time for another cup of tea before this talk. I wish I wasn't so sleepy, then I'd be happy. Or if it only it wasn't so hot in here, then I'd be happy. Or if only she'd stop going on and on about suffering, then I'd be happy. <laughs> so we can see just this niggling background sense of dissatisfaction. And that too is an example of the first noble truth. And sometimes, as we just did, even being able to recognize it and to think of it, to name it in terms of awe, oh, this is just suffering. It's the first noble truth. There is suffering. Just that 
can help lighten it or release it if it's of the more minor type. Because unconsciously, most of us have a deeply held belief that anything unpleasant is wrong, it's bad, and it shouldn't be happening. But this is a form of ignorance or delusion, and it's not in alignment with the truth of how things are. So this first noble truth, naming that there is unsatisfactoriness, can help us come into alignment with truth and experience at least a moment of relief. Because in that recognition, we've stepped out of delusion. We've stepped out of resistance. So in the bigger picture, it can be a relief to hear the Buddha simply naming there is suffering. Because collectively, on a society-wide level, we, have, uh, we also try to ignore and avoid and deny that truth. And we see this very clearly in the way society relates to old age, to sickness and to death. We put people in nursing homes and we don't talk about death and we avoid, we try to deny the truth of our own aging bodies and we value youth. And there's just, it could be another entire talk, the collective delusion of how we avoid suffering. But it also in includes any other unple unpleasant aspects of reality too. So when we as individuals aren't able to live up to the impossible expectations that society has for us, it's easy to blame ourselves and to feel inadequate. So in this context, when we hear the Buddha say, well, there is suffering, it's a radical statement. And it can free us from the expectation that life should be exactly the way we want it all the time. So this was true for me early on in my practice to hear that there is suffering was actually a relief because I'd spent most of my 20s and my early 30s doing all the things that society told me would make me happy. So I'd studied for a professional degree, I'd got a well-paid job, I... My career was on track and I was in a long-term relationship with a good man. We lived in a stylish apartment in an inner city historic building. We traveled every year to interesting places and we had a circle of friends that I thought were pretty interesting. And from the outside, it might have looked like I had everything that, and I'd done everything right. But I wasn't happy. And so when I heard this statement that there is suffering, intuitively it made sense. And it was a relief to understand that my unhappiness wasn't my own fault. It took some of the pressure off from trying to meet those unrealistic expectations. So keeping this first noble truth in mind is very important in terms of our meditation practice too. Because as I mentioned in the question session before lunch, it's very easy to turn this practice into yet another giant self-improvement project, one that's actually rooted in self-aversion. So we can take the same idealism and perfectionism that's so prevalent in mainstream society and apply it to our practice, believing that, well, if only I was practicing right, then I'd never again get angry or feel rejected or experience boredom and, or so on. And I've had people say to me things like, 
I've been meditating every day for two years and I still get angry with my 11-year-old. What is wrong? What am I doing wrong? As if there's some way that this practice is going to eradicate anything unpleasant from our lives. So just this willingness to acknowledge that there is suffering is quite a radical statement. And one of my teachers, Gil Fronsdell, he talked about a practice he did for a while when he started to recognize his own resistance to suffering. Instead, whenever he noticed any kind of unpleasant experience, he'd just silently say to himself, of course. Wishing I'd had another cup of tea. Of course. Wishing I wasn't so sleepy. Of course. Wishing she'd stop going on about suffering, of course. So just hearing the acceptance that's implicit in this statement, of course, it helps to release the resistance. Why should it be otherwise? This is how it is right now. And wanting to be, it to be different just compounds the suffering. So on retreat, we can train in meeting these relatively low-level forms of dukkha with non-reactivity, exactly as we were doing this afternoon, training in this quality of bare awareness, meeting whatever our experience is, just as it is. And we need to start training with more minor forms of dukkha so that we can gradually build up our capacity to be with the more intense forms of dukkha, because none of us are exempt from misfortune. And eventually, if not already, every one of us is experiencing aging, sickness, dying. So it's a good idea to start training now so that when we do have to face life's inevitable challenges, we're in a much better place to navigate them. Without that training, we're completely at the mercy of all these different forms of dukkha that the Buddha laid out. So I'd like to read you a summary of this first noble truth by the American scholar monk Bhikkhu Bodhi, who some of you know. He says, The Buddha starts with what's close at hand, with the suffering inherent in the physical process of life itself. Here, dukkha shows up in the events of birth and aging and death in our susceptibility to sickness, accidents and injuries, and in hunger and thirst. It appears again in our inner reactions to disagreeable situations, in the sorrow, anger, frustration and fear aroused by painful separations or by unpleasant encounters and by the failure to get what we want. Even our pleasures, the Buddha says, are not immune from dukkha. They give us happiness while they last, but they don't last forever. Eventually they must pass away. And when they go, their loss leaves us feeling deprived. Our lives, for the most part, are strung out between the thirst for pleasure and the fear of pain. We pass our days running after one and running away from the other seldom enjoying the peace of contentment. Real satisfaction seems somehow always out of reach, just beyond the next horizon. Then, in the end, we have to die, to give up the identity we spent our whole life building, 
to leave behind everything and everyone we love. So it can be quite sobering to hear this truth of dukkha laid out so boldly. But fortunately for us, the Buddha didn't just tell us how it is and then leave it at that. He didn't say, well, life's miserable, suck it up. He actually went on to give three more truths, truths that help us move in the direction of freedom. So in the second noble truth, he went on to identify the cause of dukkha, which is craving, or more literally, thirsting. So here are the words from the Sutta, again from the translation by Tanisaro Bhikkhu. And this, practitioners, is the noble truth of the origination of stress, the craving that makes for further becoming, accompanied by passion and delight, relishing now here and now there, craving for sensual pleasure, craving for becoming and craving for non-becoming. And again, this word craving is pretty strong and we might think, well, yeah, there's things I want, but I wouldn't say that I'm craving. But this word craving also refers to what I was pointing to earlier, just that basic sense of wanting things to be different. So our habitual strategy when we encounter some kind of unpleasant experience is to go after sense pleasures as a way of escaping the unpleasantness. And in our ordinary lives, most of us automatically reach for all kinds of different pleasures when things get tough. So we have an unpleasant experience and we might drink a glass of wine or eat a tub of ice cream or swallow a handful of painkillers, or call a friend, or take a long nap, or go for a run, or walk the dog, or hug our partner, or go shopping, or binge watch TV, to name just a few. We all have our favorite strategies. And none of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but if we're using them unconsciously to escape unpleasantness, we're inadvertently reinforcing a kind of dependence on them. Rather than learning how to meet difficulties in a way that leads to more ease and freedom. So one of the benefits of being on retreat, and at first it might not feel like a benefit, is that our usual strategies for dealing with discomfort are not available to us. So we have this opportunity instead to develop our inner resources to meet discomfort instead. And in that process, as we let go of craving for sense pleasures, we often come face to face with the next two forms of craving, which are craving for becoming or being and craving for non-becoming or non-being. So craving for becoming or being is that desire to become someone, to be, to exist, to identify with experience, to take it personally, and to try and create a sense of self out of it. So for example, I want to become a good meditator so I can be recognized as someone who's always wise and compassionate. It's a form of craving for becoming. And the flip side of that is the craving for non-being, which in the same example might be expressed as fear of being a bad meditator, of being recognized as someone who's inadequate or inferior. 
And this craving for non-becoming or non-being is sometimes experienced as that sense of, oh, I've had enough. I just can't deal with this anymore. Let me just go back to bed and pull up the covers and stay there. And that's quite a common experience on retreat, I think. So this craving asks us to look more closely at our relationship to dukkha. And often what we see is craving expressed as not wanting, as pushing away, rejecting or resisting experience. And on one level, it's obvious that when we resist experience, we add a lot of extra suffering to the original dukkha. So being on the lookout for resistance, learning to recognize the symptoms of resistance in our own bodies and hearts and minds is a very powerful way to help reduce suffering. So the U.S. Dharma teacher, Shinzen Young, he's a Zen and a Vipassana teacher and a scientist. He came up with a mathematical formula that expresses the relationship between suffering and resistance very clearly. And his formula is S equals P times R, which stands for suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. So pain here refers to any kind of unpleasant experience, whether that's physical or mental. And as I've been emphasizing, we can't make ourselves immune to pain because we have human bodies some amount of unpleasant experience in our lives is inevitable. That's just a given. But what we can control is the degree of resistance to it. Because the more we resist, the more we suffer. S equals P multiplied by R. So that's another reason why in the exercises today I put so much emphasis on this quality of bare awareness when we're able to stay with our experience exactly as it is, it's usually much more manageable than when we get lost in reactivity and resistance to it. So there's a famous quote by the uh, psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl, that many of you probably know. He says, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. So this cultivation of bare awareness helps to open up the space between the stimulus and the response. And because it gives us a choice over how we respond, it has a direct connection to freedom. So every moment that we can open up that space is a moment of freedom. And yet, most of us have this very deeply conditioned unconscious belief that good meditation equals pleasant experience and bad meditation equals unpleasant experience. But from the perspective of insight practice, what the actual experience is, is quite irrelevant. What's more important is whether or not we're meeting it with mindfulness. So, and this is good news because It doesn't matter what our experience is, if we're able to maintain mindfulness in relation to it, then every experience is an opportunity to develop wisdom and compassion. So I can't remember if I mentioned on this retreat already, but a few years ago I came across a slogan from a U.S. Dharma teacher 
that really helped me to see my own subtle and not so subtle ways of resisting experience. And the slogan is, if it's in the way, it is the way. If it's in the way, it is the way. And so on hearing that statement, you might think back over your own experiences of the course of this day and notice, were there any that you really felt should not be happening? If only this wasn't happening, then I'd be able to practice. If only I wasn't having this experience, then I'd really be able to practice. If only people were quieter, then I'd be able to practice. If only I wasn't so bored, then I'd be able to practice and so on. So if it's in the way, it is the way. Can I make that obstacle actually a vehicle, a vehicle of freedom? So back pain, of course, it's like this right now. Couldn't be otherwise. It's just aching and burning and tightness. It's okay. And to the extent that we are able to do this, we start to move into the terrain of the third noble truth, which is that by letting go of craving and resisting, dukkha can come to an end. And it's important to keep this in mind that the point of turning towards dukkha is so that we can free ourselves from it. Because sometimes when people hear all this talk about suffering and stress and distress and unsatisfactoriness and clinging and craving, we can start to feel a bit discouraged. And Buddhism in some circles is perceived as having a pessimistic view of the world. But I think that's because it's um, coming from a more superficial look at these Four Noble Truths. Because the last two truths are actually about the end of suffering. So this third noble truth is that there is a cure for dukkha. It's a treatable condition, a treatable dis-ease. So the actual words from the text of this third noble truth, cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is the remainderless fading and ceasing, giving up, relinquishing, letting go and rejecting of that same craving. Sounds easy. Just stop it. Just let go. And I think we all know from our own experience that intellectual idea doesn't necessarily translate into action. And for some people, we can't even imagine what it might be like to have a life where there was no craving. Because in many ways, we're addicted to our craving, to our struggles. So there's a powerful parable from Greek mythology that the translator Stephen Mitchell uses to illustrate this addiction. And it's based on the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus was a king who was punished for being self-aggrandizing by being forced to roll an immense boulder up a hill, push it up the hill only to watch it roll back and hit him over and over and over again. And he had to repeat this action for eternity. So this is how Stephen Mitchell reframes the story. He says, We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, and again up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with the rock. 
He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, sings to it. It has become the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it. Looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he's permitted to step aside, to let the rock hurtle to the bottom and go home. Tragedy is the inertial force of the mind. So I don't, I'm not sure I agree with that last statement about the force of the mind's inertia. Because neuroscience these days has discovered the brain's inherent negativity bias that we do tend to pay much more attention to what's unpleasant and painful and distressing than what's benign or enjoyable. So I think most of you know uh, Rick Hansen's statement that our minds are like Velcro for the unpleasant and Teflon for the pleasant. So to counter this inherent negativity bias, we need to train ourselves to be aware not only of dukkha, not only the presence of dukkha, but its absence. To really know and to let in and to appreciate those moments when the mind is free of wanting or resisting, even if it's only temporary. Because right there is a moment of freedom, a moment of nirvana. And this too is what the third noble truth is pointing to. So this understanding of nirvana as being a natural human experience was written about by Ajahn Buddhadasa. He a, was a highly regarded Thai meditation master of the last sen- century. And he describes our practice as being about cultivating moments of what he calls temporary nirvana until eventually these convert to complete nirvana. So he he says, temporary nirvana nourishes all sentient beings. If defilements or afflictive energies were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand them? Living things would either die or become insane first and then die. One survives because there are periods when the fires of the defilements do not burn. Periodical nirvana keeps all of us alive and well. It's a nourishing condition, normal to life. Why don't we know or feel thankful for this kind of nirvana? Fortunately, it's our instinct to acquire it. Whatever has any heart and mind will look for periods when the defilements, the strong desires are absent. Our instincts inherently have such a quality We have the instinct to go in search of spans of time when the mind is free from defilements or desires. Whenever that happens, a little nirvana comes in and the phenomena will continue until one learns how to convert it into permanent or complete nirvana. So I find that very encouraging because often when we hear terms like awakening or liberation or nirvana, it can seem like something very far off, remote, removed from this life here and now. But if we understand nibbana as being any moment when the mind is temporarily free of greed, of hatred, of delusion, right there 
is a moment, perhaps just a nanosecond of freedom. And as we keep inclining the heart and mind in that direction, those moments become more and more the default setting of the mind. And eventually we can experience more uh, permanent Nibbana. So any moment when we remember to let go of craving is a moment of freedom. And again, that sounds easy. But the Buddha was a realist. And again, he didn't stop at three noble truths. He knew that intellectual understanding was not going to do it. So he gave us a prescription, if you like. The fourth noble truth, which helps us with this process of letting go. And in the fourth noble truth, he laid out a whole path of practice which includes every aspect of our lives. So this is uh, Jnana Moli's translation of the fourth noble truth. The way leading to cessation of suffering as a noble truth is this. It is simply the noble eightfold path. That is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration or samadhi. So we need to develop all of these eight factors together to get the full benefit of what the Buddha is offering us. And I don't have time to go into them tonight, unfortunately. But just to name that this word right, as in right view, right intention, and so on, it can be... uh, misunderstood in terms of our usual binary associations with right and wrong and good and bad and success and failure. So for this reason, some translators prefer the translation of wise or appropriate. So wise view, wise intention, wise speech and so on. But either way, what this is pointing to is a whole path of practice And each of these factors really strengthens and reinforces the others. So that rather than being a straight line with a series of steps, it's more like a series of links or loops. And the first factor, right or wise view, is defined as an understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths contain within them the Noble Eightfold Path. So there's this kind of circularity in there. So rather than framing the path as a straight line, we can think of it more as a kind of a spiral, an upward spiral where we circle around each of these truths, starting with right view or wise view, which is understanding the first noble truth. Because unless we have at least some understanding of how to apply wisdom to our suffering, we'll just keep getting clobbered by it. So these four noble truths then are a training in wisdom. And because this wisdom takes time to develop, it's probable that there will be times when we do get clobbered by our suffering. And at these times we might need to consciously turn to the second wing of awakening, which is the wing of compassion. As I mentioned earlier, this compassion is the willingness to turn towards what's difficult to meet our suffering with kindness and care and courage rather than resistance. And this too is a training. 
compassion can be developed gradually. So again, we start with minor difficulties, perhaps some of the basic discomforts that you may have experienced on the first day of a retreat today, for example. So we notice the discomfort and we try to soften around it, simply acknowledging, yeah, it's unpleasant and it's okay. It's just the first noble truth. At other times, we might need more specific encouragement. So we might like to experiment with some of the phrases that we'll be cultivating in the Brahma-Vihara practices to evoke compassion. I've shared these with some of you today. One set of phrases that I use myself, I'm aware of this pain. And again, pain here means either physical or emotional pain. I'm aware of this pain. I care about this pain. May this pain release and may I know peace. So it's just an invitation again to incline the heart and the mind in the direction of softening and kindness towards the difficulty rather than our usual resistance. And again, there's a lot more I could say about compassion. I'll be talking about it again later on in this retreat. But tonight, in the spirit of compassion, I'm going to finish here and let you move the body with another period of walking meditation. And then we'll come back again at 8.15. I'll be here for just a short final sitting before bed. So thank you for your attention. And I hope that it helps all of us to move in the direction of freedom from suffering least temporary nibbana. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.